0: Today, we are learning from Lucas Pierce, son of a Ketro mom. He dedicates this time to learning a history not taught in school. Since a child, he challenged his teachers and his principals to include indigenous history in school projects. And now, as a Cornell student, he continues to learn and impart his findings with others. You can find his teachings on Indigenous history 60 seconds at a time on TikTok under the handle Loma Eats People. Today, he chooses to dispel the narrative that Native peoples were isolated from one another and teaches us about the complex trading routes and politics that existed well before the colonial disruption. thank you for coming on Runa Shungu. I really appreciate it. Um, I gotta be honest. Um, when I first saw your TikTok and I came across it, um, the biggest smile came across my face because I was like, this is it. Like, this is, this is what it's about. Um, I'm a parent of three school, well, not my youngest, but school aged children. And, um, I noticed that there was a problem with a lack of inclusivity in terms of history. And when they talked about native peoples, it's always like ancient native peoples, you know? Mm -hmm. And, And I was just like, oh, this is not good. And so we started this committee called the Justice, Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Committee. And that first year was super difficult because we focused our energies in trying to convince people why this is important And people don't like that because you're shaking up their foundation. (laughs) So at the the end of that year, it was just, everyone felt horrible. Everybody was upset on all sides. The the administration was frustrated. We were frustrated. The people on the board were frustrated. Everyone was frustrated. So I spent the summer like thinking, all right, what's my angle? What, What do I have to do? And so. I focused on just providing lessons. So hiring speakers to come into the school to just give a lesson. And mm-hmm. that kind of changed the tone and the ambiance and people kind of, I found more cohesiveness. So when mm-hmm. I saw your TikTok and you were right to the point, like talking about Tupac uh, Tupacapanki, like all these people. And I was like, this is it, right? Like, this is the spirit of, I'm just gonna give you the historical information. Google is free, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right? You can yeah. follow up, you know, you can pause what you say, write down what you say. And you even, I love your uh, your drawings too. <laughs> you know, I was just showing my husband though. I'm like, this is so cool. Um, and you could just Google and and dive into history, which is why I really love your TikTok. And this is why I wanted <laughs> yeah. you on here. So yeah. Um, to tell us first a little bit about you. Your mom
1: is Quechua, right? She's from Peru. Um, yeah, she's from Peru. So my, um, I guess so. My grandmother was from Junin, Uncumayo, uh, Peru, which is like the center, um, the center, center of Peru in the middle of the Andes. And the uh, main type of Quechua spoken there um, is Quechua one, there, <laughs> and which is different from, like, the general Quechua that you hear in most of Peru, which was Quechua 2, which is, like, what you hear in Ayacucho and Cusco, and I think Quechua is part of that um, group, too. Yes, yeah, bro. yeah. And uh, so when my grandmother moved to Lima, um, and there was a huge amount of stigma against Indigenous people back then, and there still is um, a lot, of although it's gotten better, and so she decided to not teach her children um the culture the language or any of that stuff and like actively keep it away from uh my mom and her siblings yeah and so like an example like my mom always told me like yeah sometimes my uh grandmother and mom would be talking like uh quechua in a room and the second i'd walk in they immediately switch to spanish and so they didn't want her picking up on anything. So, yeah. the, like the only catch what my mom knew was the stuff she found on TV, not wow. even from her <laughs> from her family. Yeah. And um, I asked her like, why Why would you know my grandmother do this? And it was like, it wasn't even, I, at least according to my mom, it wasn't even because my grandmother was any way ashamed of that indigenous heritage or anything. Um, but it was to protect her children from like all the like terrible racism that would happen yeah. especially if you had the accent that yes. um you know indicated that you were first you were like originally sp- you originally spoke Quechua um and although apparently my great-grandmother was pretty ashamed of it um so yeah
0: yeah that, not to cut you off but just that's the same thing in Ecuador uh um, yeah every, what you just said and uh Maya Chechik told me that that concept was called Yangashimi, which is like a language that doesn't,
1: Mm -hmm. is
0: useless essentially. Yeah. And yeah, and and I think what people, where we differ Peru and Ecuador from like Mexico is that our caste system wasn't entirely based on phenotype. It wasn't entirely based on your skin shades because also depending on what region your skin tone may vary too, Mm -hmm. Um, but it was heavily rooted Heavily rooted in um, whether or not you maintained your Kichwa identity through your language and your your vestimenta, your what you wore. So yeah. it totally makes sense that they didn't want your mother to go through that because they were very abusive. My teacher told me when he would wear his vestimenta, they would throw rocks at him. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's my teacher. That's like <laughs> it's not like he's you know that's not two three generations ago. Yeah, you know, <laughs>
1: so. It's- yeah, it's pretty bad. It was really bad, and especially like I remember during uh, when my mom would talk about like the era of the Shining Path, which is like a terrorist group in um, Peru, and that a lot of people basically blamed on indigenous people because they claimed for fight to fight for indigenous people. Although that's a whole other <laughs> um, <laughs> bag of. A uh, so <laughs> that's a whole other problem, yeah. and um, so the police and military would specifically target indigenous people and in the Andes and which was like far away from the centers of like um or the cities and everything they would uh, like uh kidnap you and basically torture you for days until you just gave up random names and even in the city so like even in lima my uh grandfather had a worker and friend who was like very dark-skinned he was very indigenous um uh, had like very a uh, lot darker skin and he would almost all the time he would get like stopped by the police or uh taken into the police station and everything and my dad I mean my grandfather would have to um would have to get him out of there and every single time he'd be calling like hey why are you late to work and it's like the police the police got me again <laughs> and wow. yeah
0: yeah yeah I mean it... <laughs> It's really sad that mm-hmm. this is the kind of um, ambience that our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents grew up in and you can kind of really, the, the history will dictate, will will tell us why, mm-hmm. right? Like so many people will, will sit here and have an opinion of whether or not someone is true or not or, or what about their customs or why not? But history, history is the answer and I think it's beautiful that you've taken your history and really dived, dove into it where you could be, right? You could be a person that was like, eh, whatever. Like, I'm just gonna follow suit and I'm not gonna care about my history and I'm not gonna like, who cares? And um, I have lighter skin so I could leave my li- live yeah. my life as a mestizo and I could be totally fine and the world would be wonderful, mm-hmm. right? And you could do that. I yeah. could do that, but that's not within our spirit. And I think it's not within mm-hmm. our spirits because if you don't value who you are, then you're just pretending and eventually yeah. you're not what what successful you truly have if you can't even value yourself right Yeah. So I think that is beautiful. When I'm telling you, when I saw your TikTok, <laughs> it just it made me so happy. <laughs> um, so let's dive a little bit into history today. So you said you wanted to talk about um, like trade and what that looked like pre-colonial era. Mm-hmm.
1: So like generally, when we're taught, um, or you know, the very small amount we're taught in school about the pre-colonial era, it's taught as if. There was not a whole lot of trade and a whole lot of communication. And I wouldn't say that it was like, it, it was never, it's never like spici- explicitly um, elaborated on. It's just kind of each culture basically they only talk about like the Maya, Aztec, and Inca, maybe the Olmec. Um, and they talk about them like they're these independent little bubbles. And even when I'm like looking at like early on in like middle school when I was just trying to like learn this history. I would look on YouTube, and they would um, talk about them like they were bubbles, like they were very isolated. In fact, I remember this one video that was like, imagine what you can do in isolation. The Maya were such a great example of what you can do in isolation. I'm like, (laughs) um... That's (laughs) ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, like, even way back in history, you see um, how the different connections that Indigenous people made made each nation wealthier and... Um, like, there was a whole lot of trade between, like, cultures and, um, goods and everything, and ideas spread around, and crops too, and some of the earliest examples of this is, like, the spread of maize, which the first, um, maize started to become, like, cultivated and grown in Mexico around, like, 9,000 years ago, and 7,000 years ago, it spread to much of, like, Mesoamerica, and then um, by like 4,000 years ago, it managed to get north to North America. And once you see maize being introduced, that's when things start to get really interesting. Um, and you start to see like really large power structures um, be introduced because that's generally what happens with farming, although it's not completely um, <laughs> predicted because there have also been, I've also seen like histories of these different hunter-gatherers. You basically see this, after the introduction of maize, it kind of seems like an example of the, the trade is Poverty Point, although that is a pre-agricultural settlement. It has, in Poverty Point, there is examples of trade from, in Poverty Point is like in Louisiana, that kind of area, the south, like the western south, that area um, down by the Mississippi. And you can see artifacts from east all the way to like almost the coastline, and way up north it had like a it had a huge area of trade and it just shows how connected these people were and then by around like 1500 BCE you start to see things start to pick up a lot more too so that's when we have the Olmec and Chavin cultures that have these helps with these large projects and everything like irrigation and you just see how Like civilization really starts to develop then and yeah so basically it continues like that in different places so I'm just then I've been focusing on like Mesoamerica and the Andes because that's where like the most is known but of course the same thing was happening in um, the Amazon it was happening in the Andes of like Ecuador and Colombia it was happening in increasing their trade even more in like the Great Lakes region and the I guess I think that's called the northern woodlands region, you'll also see a trade increase and everything. By zero, <laughs> the year zero, yeah. everything, it seems to be like, everything is starting to be pulled together and you also start to see these oceanic trade routes start to develop along, like, uh, different coastlines. This is also around, like, zero is when the starts of many of these, like, famous cultures that happened that... Didn't really exist, or existed in a, di- a completely different form by the time of Europeans came. It, that's when they start to flourish. So that's when you see the classical Maya start to come about, and you start to see the ancestors of the Wari and the in Peru. You start to see these huge mound-building cultures in the eastern parts of the United States. And the, in like Arizona, Me- day Arizona, New Mexico, that area, like Northern Mexico, you start to see uh, a lot of what would become, like the ancestors of the Pueblo and the, uh, the O'odam, they start to form their own sort of large polities and everything, and, inter- and you see a lot of trade and everything. And then that progresses, and you see a, like these huge developments it, for example, in um, the area that I just talked about, which is like Arizona, New Mexico, northern Mexico, you start to see, and one of the reasons is for farming, you start to see a lot of these different uh, towns and cities work together in order to construct these huge irrigation systems with a hohokam kamar and that's around like 1,000 a little later. And you, s- you see these like structures being built all over the place by the ancestral pueblo and they also start to connect themselves with Mesoamerica so you see in some like ancestral pueblo sites there is evidence that of (laughs) cacao from Mesoamerica and even some like Mayan cups so what what I'm hearing is like they there's all these
0: archaeological evidence of finding a clear uh intermingling right of of Mm -hmm. materials whether it's cups i know i read somewhere that they found like macaw feathers oh yeah dakota um and then our like clays and pottery from the Valdivian culture all the way up in the northwest i'm sorry southwest uh what is now southwest of the united states clearly indicating that there's influences of trade and then also i just i'm almost done reading um the history of the new world um, from Hiralomo Benzoni's memoirs uh, where he clearly talks about uh, them using the Saba tree and using these different trees to build up the canoes to carry things mm. and trade to different parts of the Americas and that even the Polynesians traveled to our coasts down in South America and that's how we have the sweet potato because of them Yeah, and it's just Amazing. I didn't know that the maize, the maize uh originated in Mexico. I, I cuz it's just so integral as a part of mm-hmm. our our culture. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? It just doesn't
1: exist all across <laughs> Americas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. it's really crazy. And the like what you talked about the Polynesian contact, there's I've seen a whole lot of evidence there like must have been Polynesian contact including the Uh, The coast of Peru and Ecuador have their boats, seagoing boats have triangular sails and they're nothing like the seagoing boats of like the rest of the Americas where it's just like canoes. They use that to really connect the Pacific coastline a lot. So that's when these cultures like the different like coastal cultures in modern day Chinchas and Ica and also in the coast of Ecuador, those start to connect with, like, farther off places up in, like, almost Me- almost in, like, Mexico. They start to connect with Panama, down in, like, Chile. And that those areas of trade become very well-situated. And also the Amazonian systems of trade, which are always ignored, <laughs> uh, even though I think they're really cool, are also being even more widely established and like their place as being very important to the Andean cultures is also being cemented even more because even before that like you see in Chavin like ruins that there's a whole lot of Amazonian influence and even modern day I heard that like some of the shamans in the coast of Peru will go to the Amazon to train and learn a lot of these things so you can kind of see that, that like yeah. even today there's still that influence and that Uh, connection knowledge yeah
0: yeah Yeah, there's a connection yeah it's it's true uh it's true and then i'm also thinking about like carrying medicine right like so like Mm -hmm. not not in the westernized sense of like aspirin but like you know (laughs) everything like whether it's feathers whether it's Mm. uh, a certain rock or whether it's a, a spiritual emblem on a rock I read a lot about I read about that in this book as well like all of these pieces were also kind of when they interact with other nations it's kind of like a gift right like I bring Mm -hmm. medicine this is medicine for my people um and that 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 really the core reciprocity, right? That culture mm-hmm. of reciprocity, of understanding that everything's a relationship, whether it's, um, you know, with the land, whether it's with the people, just that continual re- building that relationship and sharing the medicine with one another. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah. yeah. And you can see this kind of like culture of like giving these different um, things <laughs> like I guess specifically like herbs and um, medicines and foods all over the Americas. So in North America, you see the trade of yupon, uh, which is like a it has caffeine in it. It's great. Uh, I have never had it, but um, it it seems great. <laughs> in the South, it's still it's still drinking drunken to this day. And back then, it would it was like one of the things that connected all these major cultures in the south because everybody wanted some you would see the tamuqua of florida i think that's how you pronounce it have it the muskogee chickasaw they all had these they all had yupon they all had their own different ways of like serving the beverage and making it you know to their liking you see the same thing with yerba mate in south america which is of course still drinking all over the place yep um it's really popular in paraguay uruguay and argentina and you can see that the Mapuche um, also in like Chile, also had a tradition of that, but there's no way you can grow that in like cold climates where the Mapuche lived and live. And um, there was also some yerba mate found in a grave in, Chin- in uh, of the Chincha culture, which is in Peru. And so you see how like these entire trade routes are connecting these areas for these different um, goods and another good like that that isn't like i guess the thing you can eat is um these specific shells i forgot the name of them but they're they're like these bright red shells and you can find them on the coast of ecuador and northern, northern peru and they're really hard to get to but uh everybody wanted them so they're super pivotal to like the cultures there so you see in the um Chimu culture or the Chimú empire a lot of their Woodwork and a lot of their jewelry has these shells, and they were super valuable, and they were traded all over the place along um, the the South American coast, and it's it's just so widely ignored that these places had like these really interconnected trade routes. Panamanians, the indigenous panamanians who told the spanish about the inca and the guarani when the spanish first met the guarani they told them about this rich empire to the west um that was just that they had beef with
0: oh <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah that's how they conquered really mm-hmm. that's, how, that's what they, they strategized because i think uh yes a lot of natives died but they couldn't really they didn't kill everybody off as yeah I would like to to say um and yeah you're right like they try to find where there was fighting right where mm-hmm. people did not like each other and then that's how that's the only way they could have won
1: yeah <laughs>
0: it's like it was a huge <laughs> strategy that they used so that they could win yeah yeah and then so yeah um something that like i'll add into there is is the conversation that i had with my son when we talked about this part of history right because immediately people go oh well if they were against each other then (laughs) then it must be okay (laughs) that we did it
1: i've heard i've heard that argument so many times yeah
0: yeah but the difference i is it's something that i But my son being, you know, 11 and inquisitive is just like, well, why would they do that? Why would they go against other nations like that? And then I thought, well, let's, let's put it into a situation where we could, that's relatable or that we can imagine ourselves in, right? So Mm -hmm. like, let's imagine that aliens came to the, to our planet out of nowhere and they had these crazy weapons and they just blasted communities left and right, like obliterated them and they were gone. Mm -hmm. And your only chance of survival was to say, hey, maybe look over there. <laughs> yeah. Would you do that in that situation? Mm-hmm. Right? And then yeah. it was kind of like a, a, cause we can't sit here and judge and pretend we would know what to do. If we didn't, yeah. if we weren't living it. And the thing is that these people not only like killed people, they brutalized people. They mm-hmm. raped people. Yeah, um, in, in Hidoloma Benzoni's memoirs, he talks about them raping eight-year-olds or mm-hmm. making raping them and then making the women carry the babies around their necks, dead. I mean, I, are, like, this is the not amount of like, brutality. yeah, it's just, I think w- w- when we describe exactly what the brutalities were, we can stop and understand why people would say, it <laughs> you know yeah. like, like go over there <laughs> or, yeah, and- or or maybe we'll give you these people as slaves but don't kill us you mm-hmm. know it's yeah.
1: understandable mm-hmm. yeah and people always forget that the year Euro- like i like what i've noticed what i've like either talked to people or seen what other people have said is they always forget that the europeans encountered a like politically complicated and um interconnected world wasn't just like oh they were just indigenous people here just uh, doing whatever and then suddenly the Europeans just turned them all against them I don't know whatever (laughs) what could have ever happened and like before this they were like these huge like there were generational conflicts there were huge polities that had their different beefs and anger either whether it was for like personal reasons that if there was like whatever monarchy there or it was like environmental reasons like the other one had a market that they wanted to like take control of for example the uh, Powden uh, who the English first met when they set up their Jamestown colony colony of Jamestown they had this major com- conflict although it wasn't an active conflict it was just more like a like they angrily stared at each other <laughs> um with I the- like you <laughs> <laughs> that
0: kind of beef um, we, don't the <laughs> <laughs> huh? we don't associate with
1: them. We don't associate with them. It literally was like that. Yeah. And they got like, they would, each time the English would ask about their, about their neighbors, the Monacan Confederacy, they'd always give them like dirty looks and the English would just be like, okay, I guess, I guess we won't look into it. <laughs> but so the Monacan Confederacy to their West um, had these like really good um, connections to the copper trade. And the Powhatan loved copper, um, and it, all over like the, the western, the eastern part of the United States, copper was like a symbol of power because there like was little to no gold, and um, like if you had a lot of copper, it was like amazingly worked and everything. It meant you had a lot of power, and um, he wanted access to that copper trade, or the chief of the Powhatan wanted access to that copper trade, so <laughs> he. Did not like the Monarchy because they basically had a um, had a monopoly on it, and that's one of the main theories that of as to why he let the English kind of reside in his Confederacy uh for so long, despite their various like atrocities against his people, which was because they could offer him these really lucrative trade routes into Europe, and um and you see this like like the Taíno when they first came, they offer Columbus all these different um, Like beautiful things that they have, um, like feathers and uh, fruits and everything. And it's because, like, a lot of these people wanted to set up these trade routes and also wanted the Europeans as friends for their own like political things. And people always forget that it's like this is like this is a complicated world. And the and when the Europeans first came, they were just another player.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's a good perspective. You know. Um, I didn't think of it that way. That's a really good
1: perspective. I didn't think of it that way. And then you see Europeans taking advantage of these different conflicts and of course like what you said of their extreme brutality just perpetuating things to um, these like conflicts that already existed or may not even have existed before to like an extreme um, point and um they'll introduce a lot of like slave trading to places where there may not have been slave trading before or it was not nearly to the extent they'll introduce huge amounts of diseases which destroy these power structures and in many places um like completely change how civilization works like in the amazon in the south um southern united states there those places were home to like these huge polities these um large cities with uh complex social structures and everything and disease comes and suddenly they don't have the people to be able to like uphold these large power structures and uphold the amount of like agriculture and um systems that you need to be able to maintain these um to be able to maintain these like nations and systems and so they kind of collapsed in on themselves so that's why when de soto came to the south it was like these these amazing cities everything and then he wreaks havoc there and he leaves and then like a hundred a hundred and two hundred a hundred years later the french come and they're like wow this is this is not nothing like what de soto uh talked about it's everything's a lot smaller here (laughs) um the u.s the like the english come and they're like wow these why are there so many like like smaller tribes and everything everything's just a lot smaller people are a lot more isolated and it's because there were these huge um like like apocalyptic level of events of plague that because of these huge trade routes that i talked about before like preceded the colonizers in spanish in almost like all the cases
0: yeah, you know, that actually reminds me, I literally just had a conversation with my last night, because I had, I had written a historical summary for class in Quechua, And he was telling me that um, when the Spanish came, the first to go, the first that they killed were the people. That have had a huge had a huge cultural position. So like mm-hmm. the Yachaks, the people in charge of the kipus, the people in charge of all of these different things, although they still use kipus to this day, but mm-hmm. they're the people that were really like prominent figures, they would kill them. So oh, all, yeah. so all these, these systems that were dependent on them
1: mm-hmm.
0: would collapse. Yeah. And, like and I think, remind- and that's in geography, but that, I think that's the difference. That's the key here, because I also hear people say, "Well, colonization happens, and blah 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 blah. <laughs> Conquering happens, and blah blah blah. blah all that yeah. junk." But the truth is, is what you, what you just said, which is like, yeah, there are different nations that existed, this is not just one uniform indigenous people and that's it. It was different nations that interacted with each other, that warred with each other, that didn't like each other. Some did like each other, some did not. And the Incas being like, a, a, I think, a good example of that, right? Like, the, so the Incas, like my people, some of them didn't want to be part of the the Mm -hmm. that con that um that civilization the inca civilization they wanted to be their own they didn't see a reason to join the incas because they were self-sufficient and didn't need their system yeah and that's why the incas couldn't necessarily conquer all of ecuador but did get Mm -hmm. a lot of the andean mountains and did have a lot of influences on both sides of the mountains but the one thing that i will point out is that although the incas were these this royal family that did conquer right entre comillas in, in quotation marks they did conquer but they didn't destroy oh yeah culture. They didn't burn the mummies. They didn't steal their gold. They didn't make them, uh, you know, talk to them like as if they were trash. They didn't rape them and make them carry their babies around their shoulders. They weren't slamming their babies across rocks. They weren't killing people to that extent. It was more of like, hey, we want to be in charge.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, We
0: want to rule because this this makes sense. But they Mm -hmm. weren't abusing people to this extent where cultures were wiped out. They weren't forbidding people to speak their own language. People spoke their original language and Quechua. And Quechua is not Quechua because Quechua is a combination of the original languages with Quechua. It's like this. And apparently, um, from what I understand, Quechua is also a really old language that all the comerciantes, all the people that would sell stuff in order to communicate with the natives further down the south, they kind of spoke this uniform type of language to interact with each other and conserving their original language at home. And mm-hmm. with their community so it's not like it's more of like okay we, we're conquering you but we're not destroying your identity yeah even in ecuador you would say uh or even in in peru i, I believe it's like aymara quechua right like you would say mm-hmm. your community under this rule right so you still yeah. were able to preserve somewhat of your identity as opposed to when the spanish came here and they used religion to really annihilate mm-hmm to the point yeah. where it's it's created a lot of trauma presently till this day, just like bringing mm-hmm. it back to your grandma, your great grandmother and your grandmother, right? Like yeah. the trauma is that close. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> and like the Inca also, I wouldn't say this was like a specific thing to preserve culture, but it definitely didn't hurt is that they had like the diversity of their empire is something that they were definitely proud of to a certain extent to the point where like different ethnic groups were supposed to wear different clothes in the Incan empire to signify what ethnic group they were part of. And like they had their um, ears uh, like it was certain policies on like how big their ears could be pierced and everything of different ethnic groups of different towns and um yeah it like but the spanish um and english and different and like portuguese invasions of the americas was very different to one that it wasn't very centrally controlled like like some king in europe would be like yeah go over there and do whatever (laughs) (laughs) And, and of course you know the people that would come would like be the most uh brutal people brutal people and people who had just nothing to lose and um and of course that brutality was kind of set up by as a precedent by columbus and they would come and they just commit all these atrocities which um you wouldn't really see in in the americas nearly to that extent especially since the biggest point of a lot of these empires was to was for like economic reasons and uh, killing an entire village is definitely not good for the economy um exactly
0: exactly the
1: spanish definitely like the spanish uh definitely tried to make these colonies super economically um like prosperous and they were to a certain extent but they definitely did not Help the the how prosperous these col- these colonies were because before colonization most of these places had a whole lot more production because um, the Spanish would implement their own rules they'd of course kill all these people they'd kill all the people in power they um, a lot of the people in power and they basically caused political turmoil like after Pizarro um, destroyed the Inca Empire there was like forty years of just constant political tor- turmoil and uh, civil war and all these different ethnic groups picking sides all over the place. It was messy. And um, and you just see that same sort of pattern of like this really complicated political conflict and just spiraling out of control. And that's how the Spanish managed to put themselves on top. But to the cost of the the different structures that made these areas so productive and so rich.
0: think that these pieces of history that pre-colonial trading systems and routes and and uh relationships and disharmony as well how do you think that history is relevant to us today
1: in north america specifically like the woodlands the region around the great lakes uh i find the, the governmental philosophies there so interesting and even the founding fathers of the united states thought that they were applicable and which is why they took a lot of inspiration from the iroquois and the various algonquin nations there i find it super interesting their various ways of making the people have a voice and it's something you didn't really see in europe for much of europe's history, especially after the fall of rome Where it was like these feudal systems that were very hierarchical, and if you were like some random serf, you really had no say as to what the nobles did or the kings did, unless you, especially like before the Black Plague and before they was, they really had even control over their any small amount of control over their wages, because there were just too many serfs, and they could just the nobles could just abuse them if they wanted to leave they could just be replaced (laughs) so there wasn't really any power they had but in that area you see that because of like the history of how these large structures came to be there is this willingness to maintain that certain power of individual people and people to participate in their governments and i think that's just super interesting and um very interesting in the way that they managed to avoid these very centralized systems that can be very hierarchical and put the people at the bottom in a very disadvantageous place um and generally like you know the first to go if there's something like a big war or famine um and yeah and also like the amazing ways that they confederated to try to make larger polities and nations where they managed to balance power in between them, so that they could make these compromises and not fall apart and into like civil war and everything. You see that in the Iroquois, with the like very specific politics they use to make sure that not every nation, not all five uh, later six nations in the Iroquois nations would be, get offended by their position, would feel they would all feel represented, and they all felt like they had a certain amount of power to be able to make their own decisions. And even, like, the very various names that they had, that each nation's, like, group that voted on had, they had this, like, kinship type of thing. So, like, uh, two of the nations were, like, the older brothers. Two of them were, like, the younger brothers. And the Onondaga, I think, were were the middle child. And they have these different names, and they have these different, like, procedures of who can veto or how votes are distributed that in the end make it so that they all have the same amount of say in what happens in the like Iroquois or the Haudenosaunee national government but it makes them all feel like they have a certain amount of power over each other in terms of like the names and the various like aesthetics of how they um of how the power was distributed yeah and you see that in the United States with like the compromise between, like, the um, Rep- House of Representatives and the Senate, where it was, like, small states and big states that they were really scared which one of them was right. going to take over the other. And so they had to, like, do this really interesting compromise. And, of course, you know, this and confederate like that in order to be able to um rid themselves of England. And that was, in fact, one of the things that Thomas Jefferson wrote about that he was like, well, wow, you know, if these if these uh native people could do it i us, uh, us europeans could could yeah <laughs> could he literally inveterate. said that huh yeah he, he was like they've existed coding, for like yeah. so many hundreds of years except he's like these savages right
0: what well, did he say if these yeah. savages can come up with yeah. uh, a way of peace surely we can too yeah <laughs> and <laughs> then that's, that's literally what he said and and um you know something that i also want to kind of uh plant this thought in there is that you know bringing it back to solely on the trade system and like you said even the government systems Mm -hmm. um the fact that for thousands of years people have interacted and moved across borders Mm -hmm. and the horrible treatment Um, of yeah of of Mayan people and, and indigenous people in, in what is now Mexico and mm-hmm. eat and separating those children from their families and keeping them in cages. Like America, the United States of America, the policies and the policies of Mexico are so new compared to the relationship that nations have had together for thousands of years. Yeah, and, and I think we all have to stop and think like the ridiculousness of stopping native people from crossing the border is it's uh-huh. just, it's ridiculous, right? Yeah, And then you're gonna get people to say, well, that's the new law and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, you look at the Jay Treaty that's like for the natives in Canada can cross the border anytime because their ancestors predate the system, right?
1: Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. something
0: that they were able to work out in their treaty. And it makes me wonder, as as someone diving into history, at what point do we say, one, the United S- United States has been cruel to indigenous people, period, Mm -hmm. and then extended that cruelty, even as in 2020, 2019, like the 2000s, where they have children, literal children who are supposed to, are escaping violence, are coming in as a refugee status, and there were administrative strategies to stop the process and then separate babies, some babies as young as six months old, from their mothers, Mm-hmm. from their nursing mothers and putting them in cages we have adolescents getting raped and we have like very apparent uh abuse happening to native peoples and now many of those children cannot be reconnected with their families simply for the reason that they do not speak spanish nor english they speak their indigenous language so i think that we have to like teach our children like for teachers for our teachers who are listening to this episode really implant this knowledge Mm -hmm. that the americas have had a relationship the nations within the americas have had a relationship for thousands of years whether they got along or not they traded with one another and you can clearly see that through archaeological evidence and so when these children grow up these systems that are in place look ridiculous and Mm -hmm. horrific instead of having people that excuse those things
1: Mm -hmm. and like the irony is that they don't even afford the reservations in the u.s and canada to the same like the u.s is always talking about like borders and that's how a nation exists and it'll just crumble without like strict borders but they don't afford that uh same privilege to any of the um like reservations and nations inside the united states where they can control their own they can yeah they can control their own laws but if you're not from the tribe you can't really be tried by a tribal court um and they really can't control their own borders and yeah and like as you said about like this uh, trade between the different nations uh i remember the so monkach he was like this um person from the Yazoo nation and he wanted to like figure out like this these a lot of these philosophical questions and he was like I wonder if other people uh I think it was like where we where um you know everyone came from and he asked the elders of his nation and he didn't get a satisfactory response so he kept traveling and he went to different nations like the Cherokee he went to the Iroquois and all these different places and he just like went there and they accepted him and they were like hey let me show you around I remember uh part of it the Iroquois I think showed him niagara falls which is which i just found really fun that's always been a tourist attraction <laughs> yeah and he traveled all the way to like i think modern day um oregon or washington and then he, it got too cold and he just went back <laughs> uh, <laughs> um but yeah and just there's a lot of like political ideas that seem really radical to us now and, and they seem really unprecedented and crazy like oh god how could you ever like implement like a really free border policy or how could you implement these like systems that um give people food and housing and everything no matter what and it's like there there's a huge amount of precedent for all these things in the americas especially for really like representative and democratic systems very communal systems that allow um where everybody gets food and housing and a community and everybody works as much as they can for the community and um you see these uh, and um you see these like very free border policies and these exchange of cultures that it's really pretty and beautiful and yeah and it doesn't need to It like the assumption is it always needs to be like this certain way major president like europe and everything like it's it, when you learn indigenous history you just find out that there's so many other ways to um Governed. Like govern a nation and uh, interact with other nations that you don't really hear from European history nearly as much and nearly as often and it's just really interesting to like broaden your horizons wow I love uh, that
0: perspective yeah yeah that's a great for like a learning governing right or just mm-hmm. learning about governments different styles of governments and how they interacted with another with one another that is beautiful yeah
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah like that's a very great, uh, I think, way to for teachers or parents who are teaching their stud- their students and children how to really process and analyze and critically think about the different governments and what works and what doesn't work. What has history shown them? In mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and, and kind of cultivate that that o- more open perspective for the mm-hmm.
1: students
0: yeah
1: and I feel like sorry for cutting you off no no minute. not at all um but like we're always like in history class and at least this is what I always taught that like democracy and um like our current economic system and our current borders like all these things are completely unprecedented and um we're just forging a new way we don't have we don't have any idea how these things work and um you know like before our current economic system, that was just feudalism, and that's how it was. Um, and before our current government system, it was just monarchies, and that's how it was. And people act like they don't have any like one to learn off of, except like modern history in the past like 200 years or less. But there's like the, there's a huge amount of precedent for all these amazing um, structures that we could easily learn from and even incorporate into our society now like how um a lot of the uh like i know the mojave and the guarani both had systems if the chief wasn't working for the people he could be taken out real quickly and it didn't matter <laughs> and i know in the iroquois they had this rule of each time you passed a new law you had to think of like the next seven generations and how it would affect them uh, and clan yeah. mothers would decide if like whether the different chiefs and representatives actually like fought for their people and if they were actually upholding the like traditions of those various systems or the respect of that position where today you'll see in various countries like corruption and re- like any sort of like amount of respect for the people that you represent, just doesn't really exist just all over the world and there are like a lot of different ways that uh these different cultures and nations attack these problems and some were more successful than others and it's just there's just a lot to learn from there
0: oh my god yes (laughs) yes absolutely absolutely wow that is definitely something to take away from.
1: When we get back,
0: Lucas will share book resources. We'll have a discussion on how the omission of Indigenous history in schools is problematic. And what is the solution? We must understand that there comes a point in time where we must recognize that the omission of great civilizations across the Americas is a product of white supremacy. I also want to let our listeners know that you'll be recommending a book, right? I think we we talked about.
1: Yeah. So the first book about the Amazon is *The Ecology of Power: Culture, Place, and Personhood in the Southern Amazon um, from 1000 to 2000 AD* uh, by Michael J. Hickenberger. It's basically it has like a whole lot of information on these various cultures throughout history of um, South America. Uh, I think I got some interesting information on the Manteño culture uh, or Huancabica culture of Ecuador there uh, yeah. from there. And it's it like the good thing about it is that you don't have to read the entire thing through. You can be like, you know what, I wonder what's happening in like the, the, the coast of Peru um, yeah. at this point in time. And you can just kind of like go through it as you feel like it. Yeah. And um, that's a prehistory of South America, ancient cultural diversity on. least known continent by jerry d D moore okay cool there was one teacher who told me i asked like why are there only like 15 pages on the histories like i I know there's more and uh, she was like you know nothing's really known about the histories there and then like i'm i keep looking into it and i keep finding more and the annoying thing about it is that i don't have enough time to read it all (laughs) (laughs) i have 50 tabs open of just books and articles and um, websites and all yeah. these different things that have so much information, I just don't have to, the time to and, read it. Yeah. And the, and, yeah.
0: and so that's another beauty of this, right? It's something that a friend and I was saying that we were talking about this and I said, you know, Dunashingu as it is right now is like, if there was like a a 101 class, right? Like a super, super brief, like not like the summary of a 101 class is really what it is, right? Like this is just like a total interest because there's so much. People don't also like <clears throat> I think dive into this unless they're either descendants, they're native, or practicing like in community indigenous people, or some they've had some exposure to it. And you don't get any exposure to it until as an option past college <laughs> like you're, mm-hmm. this is like your masters now right your doctorates <laughs> yeah. that you've decided that you want to focus on this but it's not really like a kid won't know to want to research any of this as a child yeah because it's just not there
1: yeah it's it's really like a lot of it is really hard to find because like um, on most things in Europe, about Europe and like the Middle East, you know, you go to Wikipedia and there's this giant article about it, and you can just read all about it, and. Um you can find all these amazing historical sources you know if you're a child and you don't want to read which you know i can relate to um uh there are like amazing youtube videos about it all over the place but for indigenous history it's just a lot more inaccessible you have to have a certain basis of knowledge to know what you're searching for like i managed to contact um the uh, like the head chief of the Natchez tribe in the United States mm. and he, I think he said that he was tra- he was working on trying to write down the oral history because it's very alive mm. in the Natchez and he said that one time um, these archaeologists were excavating this one mound site and they, and they were like, I, I, we don't know what happened here, you know, and they finally decided to ask him and he was like, yeah, you know, this is the name of the site, okay, this is what happened here <laughs> and he knew all that stuff and like, wow. they just never asked <laughs> and there's just so many examples of this and it's just really annoying because like, then that information is kind of like kept in the tribe and it's not really widely dispersed. Mm-hmm. And sometimes like that's on purpose. Uh, yeah. Like I know like many Mayan people and are very like wary of foreigners for, and for good reason. And 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 I know that um, like preserving the certain, like, that ownership over their own history is very important of, like, for, like, the Tlingit people, but a lot of people are, like, very willing to share this, but they just haven't been asked yet, or they, and it hasn't really been publicized as anything, like, uh, very formal, or I guess trustworthy, because it comes from, like, an oral account, which is weird, because written accounts also have, like, all sorts of, like, crazy biases and everything, and they should both be studied. I don't yeah. know why they always ignore the oral histories.
0: Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And especially since there's also history of even like colonial written down history talks about how amazing the uh, the memory the indigenous peoples had of their accounts because they wouldn't write anything down. They would just know by heart and they never remembered every single detail and t- even like the description of each person that was involved was very much uh, not forgotten. Mm -hmm. and they just try to like say oh well it wasn't written so it's not valid but that in itself is a very westernized colonial kind of spirit right if like Mm -hmm. we're going to dismiss this because it's not in our way in our system when we can look at history and see that many colonial written information is incorrect so it doesn't matter if it's written down or not because there's a lot of misinformation on there and all of that has been written down so mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that if you wrote it down it's it's more accurate than something that's been passed down for many generations and what something that i have noticed is that oral histories was very much alive in my family because my parents are Montubios, and their my great-grandmother their grandma uh was from guano uh, like, it's like a little canton from Riobamba so from the Purua people, um, and she had, she explicitly, like, she would pass down these oral stories, these cuentos that had all these all these points to them, right, of teaching points, and mm-hmm. when I started researching Wano, that's part of the tradition, and the same, it was the same stories, like, I yeah. had already known the story only because my father Told me that story my theas have told me that story mm-hmm. you know but it's accurate because now i'm diving into guano history and boom there it is so it's like yeah we need to take value into oral history and i think this podcast is also kind of a token to that because yeah. i'm not writing anything down i'm talking to you you're talking to me and we're like contributing to history right in in a way in a very minute scale of course but still like contributing to listen to the story listen to the history listen to what happened so that you can go out and, and, and learn more yeah so we're going to add them onto the to the website runashungu.com r u n a s h u n k u.com and well you know you can dive into history a little bit more Aruna uh, Shugo is really intended to start these conversations, provide some sort of context so that you can start your journey into learning and incorporate the information that you learn into your school curriculum, to your class curriculum, whether you're a teacher or you're a homeschool parent or just anyone that really just wants to learn and educate themselves a little bit more, but doesn't really know where to start. Because I think that's like the biggest issue is that people don't really know where to start because this was an intentional design to omit our history and kind of give us uh, our answers. The sisters kind of this savage quote-unquote um uh persona to really dehumanize us um and yeah. take over our the land resources and people and i think as soon as you realize that then you're able to see just how dehumanizing uh a lot of ten, a lot of american behavior is towards natives uh whether through movies i can't tell you i mean that's a whole other conversation uh, <laughs> yeah. through ma- mascots. I mean, there's, there's a constant like with embedded within colonial culture is the humanizing of native peoples. And mm-hmm. by incorporating these histories, you're combating that, you're helping yeah. dismantle that. So we, we hope that our listeners take what we've learned today and dive into history. We'll be posting about these books on the website and learn a little bit more and incorporate this information into your curriculum. And you yourself will have been part of this change in history where you'd be contributing to combating colonial perceptions of indigenous peoples. And I think that's very important. (laughs) Thank you so much, Lucas, for coming
1: on the show today. I hope to have you, you back. <laughs> Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: If you enjoyed the content, please hit follow for new episode updates. Runa Shungo has a mission to change the narrative of Native peoples by learning from our elders, activists, and students alike. Our website is growing with resources for educators, so please help spread the word. If our mission speaks to your spirit and you are able Please donate so we can expand our efforts. Yupai Chani, and thank you for listening.